Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Have you ever wondered where the phrases came from? uh, Man, they were fighting like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Or, man, it was like the Hatfields and the McCoys out in the church parking lot. I'd often wondered where that came from. I've heard it over the years. And so I decided to do some research and found out that they actually were two families named the Hatfields and the McCoys that had quite a long, bitter conflict. Uh, It all began about 150 years ago when um, January 7th, actually, 1865, near the West Virginia-Kentucky border. That's when Asa McCoy was shot by members of the Hatfield family for serving in the Union Army. This launched a bitter and bloody family feud that continued for at least 40 years. The Hatfields of West Virginia were led by the patriarch William Hatfield, and the McCoys of Kentucky were led by Randolph McCoy. The hostilities between these two families led to countless gunfights, brawls, property damage, affairs, and at least a dozen deaths, and many more wounded, and even a Supreme Court case. All this has caused Hollywood, once Hollywood was invented and created in the early 20th century, Hollywood fell in love with this infamous feud. Over the past 100 years, there have been countless books and movies and documentaries unpacking the details of the conflict. For example, and I didn't know this, just learned this yesterday, uh, the Hatfields and McCoys inspired a 1950 Bugs Bunny cartoon. They also inspired the 1976 launch of the popular TV game show, Family Feud. And a 2012 History Channel miniseries starring Kevin Costner and Bill Paxton. Hostility is a byproduct of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they were banned from the garden, and then Cain killed Abel, human beings have been at odds with one another. The real-life story of the Hatfields and McCoys is a reminder of just how far, how wide, and how deep conflict can go without the uniting power of Jesus Christ. So in today's scripture passage, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Jesus Christ can be the hero of any conflict. We're resuming our series in the book of Ephesians today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder so you can follow along. If you forgot your Bible, just uh, raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. And as you turn there, allow me to review some helpful background information about this letter. Uh, Ephesians is one of four letters the Apostle Paul wrote during his first incarceration in Rome for preaching the gospel. The other three letters that he wrote while there are Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. The Apostle had helped plant a church in the city of Ephesus during his second missionary journey somewhere around 53 AD. He left Ephesus and then returned a year later and stayed for three years preaching and teaching. So he had a special relationship with this church. And if my memory serves me correct, this church got the most time with him during his church planting ministry when compared to other churches. So when Paul is writing this, he's in Rome. He's he's handcuffed to a Roman soldier under house arrest, waiting for a trial, a hearing with Caesar. And it's now about 60 to 61 A.D., or three to four years after his departure from Ephesus. Our theme verse for this series is Ephesians 1.4. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to underline it or highlight it in your own Bible. But let's read it out loud together. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Throughout this letter of Ephesians, Paul reminds us directly and indirectly that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. And for this reason, your position in Christ should determine your purpose in life. Well, what's, what's our purpose in life as Christ followers? Simply put, to glorify God in everything that we do. And an example of a time when it's difficult to glorify God, but we need to still do it, is when we have to fellowship, work, or worship with believers who are different than us, believers we may not like, or that we are in conflict with. And thus, our big idea for today is this. Jesus Christ makes a unified, universal church possible. Jesus Christ makes a unified, universal church possible. In the first ten verses of chapter 2, the apostle explained how Jesus was able to make reconciliation between God and man possible through Christ. He offered salvation to both Jews and Gentiles through the gospel. We were told in the first ten verses that any who, anyone who repents and by faith trusts in Christ alone for their salvation would be brought alive spiritually after being dead in sin and given a new purpose of serving Christ. However, there was a second reconciliation that, needs, that needed to take place. So, so verses 1 through 10, which are very popular, and many of you probably remember me preaching that message. Uh, verses 1 through 10 talk about the first reconciliation between God and man. Today's text, verses 11-22, talks about a second reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. Thus, there's a type of double reconciliation that takes place in the gospel. Jews and Gentiles are first reconciled to God, and then secondly, reconciled to one another. And that's what today's passage is about. Now, before we dive into our text for today, I want you to know, I am aware, after spending several hours with this passage this week, there's some heavy theology that is hard to make practical here. However, with the Lord's help, I'm going to do my best to put the cookies on the lowest shelf for all of us. And as someone who studies theology for a living, I don't want to be guilty of what I once heard someone say. A theologian is a person who talks about things he doesn't understand, but makes it sound like it's all your fault. Okay? I'm going to try my best not to do that. It's not your fault. So with that, if you would, look at... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 with me. Therefore, Paul writes, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Here's the first point on your outline, and that is, number one, the problem of being separated for Gentiles. Paul is talking about here in these first two verses, 11 and 12, about the problem of being separated for Gentiles. He says, remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. The verb form here of remember in the original text it's what uh, Greek scholars call a present imperative. Uh, it, this simply means Paul was commanding the Ephesians to recall who they used to be and to keep recalling it. Contrary to what some might think, the Lord doesn't want believers to forget their previous life without Christ. Instead, He wants us to remember it. Why? Because it will keep us thankful for what we have in Christ. Verse 11 also raises a good question for those of us living in 21st century America. What is a Gentile? 
Well, simply put, a Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish. It's anyone who was born outside of a pure Jewish bloodline. Jews saw Gentiles as pagans who worshipped other gods instead of the one true God. And since I know most of you in here, I think it's safe to say we are all Gentiles. At least I haven't met anybody yet that's here today who was born in a Jewish bloodline. So, verse 11 then, Paul continues, he says, You Gentiles, all of us, were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. You might remember me mentioning before that Jewish men were required by God in the Old Testament to circumcise their male body parts so they would have a constant reminder that they belong to God. This commandment and other laws were supposed to make the Jews distinct and holy in comparison to the other nations in the world. Unfortunately, it had the opposite effect. Uh, this circumcision and following the Old Testament laws caused the Jews to have a spiritual pride. And that pride caused them to commit religious racism against the Gentiles. They'd look down their noses at Gentiles by calling them unclean, uncircumcised, dogs, and many other insults. And they even refused to have anything to do with them. Jews and Gentiles had despised each other for centuries. Even after coming to faith in Christ, many modern-day evangelicals don't know this, but even after coming to faith in Christ, many of the Jews were still discriminating against their Gentile brethren. And the history of the conflict between these two groups was so bad that when each group started coming to Christ and coming into the church and worshiping together, there was conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers about what church should look like. They started bringing their baggage into the church and their personal preferences and cultural differences. Paul wrote about this in Romans 14 because it was a problem in the church in Rome. And he wrote about it to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Trying to settle the disputes and the differences between Jewish believers who came out of the Jewish faith and Gentiles who came out of a multitude of pagan religions. Trying to unite them. So the fact that the Gentiles were born outside of God's special nation, which was Israel, and they lacked the external mark of God, which is circumcision, it meant they also lacked special privileges that God had only given to the people of Israel. However, what's interesting in this passage is that the apostle doesn't address the culprits of the racism, but rather the victims. He says, and here's the subpoints on your outline, letters A, B, and C. He says, Gentiles, you Gentiles in Ephesus, you were at one time before Christ without citizenship. That's letter A. You were without citizenship. Remember, at that time, you were alienated from the commonwealth, he says. According to scriptures, unbelieving Gentiles are lost and without a country. It means that although believers, excuse me, although unbelievers may belong to a nation other than Israel here on earth, they don't belong to the only nation in history that God created, chose, and made promises to. So, so for example, God did not create the United States, He didn't choose the United States, and He's made no promises to the United States. He only did that for Israel. So unbelieving Gentiles are like, and, and all of us, before we came to know Christ, if you don't know Christ yet, you're still there, but we were like Tom Hanks in that movie, The Terminal, that came out in 2004. If you haven't seen it, it's a good movie. I recommend it. He, he was stuck. His character was stuck in an airport because his previous country, from which he wanted to immigrate from, no longer existed, the United States wouldn't let him enter and, and migrate as a, as a refugee. Well, in a similar sense, unbelievers 
who are not born in a Jewish bloodline, so Gentile unbelievers, Paul is saying, you were alienated. You, you were not part of the commonwealth, the kingdom of Israel. And so you were stuck in spiritual no man's land because you belong to earthly countries that God doesn't recognize and you're denied entry into Israel because you weren't born there. Next, Paul says, uh, you Gentile unbelievers, when you were unbelievers, you were without a future. You were without a future. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Although the Lord includes blessings for Gentiles in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, He did not make covenants with any other nation ever. Not the Roman Empire, not Egypt, not China, not Canada. So regardless of whether an unbeliever is born in China, Canada, Great Britain, none of those countries or any other nation on earth have been promised a future by God. Only Israel. So Paul is saying basically, before you were saved, you Greeks in Ephesus or you Americans in Bakersfield, you had nothing to look forward to but the eventual demise of your country and the judgment of your soul for your sin. That was your condition according to God before Christ. So letters A, B, and C, excuse me, letters A and B logically lead to C. Gentile unbelievers are C without hope. Without hope. Hope is the patient positive expectation that our current circumstances will change. It's the anticipation that our tomorrow is better than our today. But unbelievers in the world, they may hope for the best, but only the Lord can deliver the best future. And so as if Letters A, B, and C weren't already bad enough. Paul concludes his review of their past spiritual condition and our past spiritual condition by saying the worst of the worst. It's right there in your Bible. He says, you were without God. You lived in God's world, and yet you didn't even know Him. It doesn't matter how pretty how popular, how influential, how healthy, how wealthy someone is. If they do not know Jesus Christ, they are without hope and without God. God's Word says nothing good about the unredeemed sinner. And that's a horrible place to be. Without hope, without God. Now, Jews, the Jews, on the other hand, they had all the positives of the negatives that Paul just listed in verses 11 and 12. They had God's special mark of circumcision. They had a national identity. They had promises and covenants from God that they could count on. And they had a hope and a future. But Paul says to the Ephesians, and he's saying to us, because we were not born in a Jewish bloodline, without Christ, you were without hope, you had no future, and you were without God. So, something I want to try to do here in this message that I, I do every now and then is I try to list implications. And, and what I mean by an implication is it's a, it's a practical connection that's implied by the text. So I'm trying to think hard about what's the section saying and What's that really mean in our daily lives? And so here's the first implication. I encourage you to write down. What do we do with this, this truth that Gentiles were separated? And that's a problem. Well, I think it means that there's nothing good about your life before Christ. There's nothing good about your life before Christ. Although the Lord may want us to remember what our life was like before Christ, because obviously Paul's saying, remember, remember. He does not want us to miss our life before Christ. There's a big difference. 
It doesn't matter if you were prettier, lighter, more popular, more influential, healthier, wealthier before you came to know Christ. You still had no citizenship in heaven, no future and no hope according to God's Word. And so, so what I think the Word is implying here is that we shouldn't look back on our previous life going, oh man, those were the good old days. Man, I wish I could go back to what things were used to be like. Man, those are great times. And then I got saved. And life started to stink. And we shouldn't do that. Man, I had a lot more fun before I became a Christian. Man, I was better looking before I became a Christian. Or, man, I had more money before I became a Christian. No, no, no. Paul's saying, there was nothing good about your life before Christ. You were condemned to hell and separated from God. You had no hope of a future beyond the grave. Bad news. But there's encouragement here. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're no longer an outsider, but rather an insider. Now, all the things that were said about your previous life in verses 11 and 12 are no longer true. And that is good news. We can say now what David says in Psalm 16. You are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. I have no good apart from you. David was saying in Psalm 16, verse 2, I can't imagine my life without you. I would never want to go back to life without you. Even though his life was hard at the time he wrote this. Next, let's look at verses 13 to 17. Paul continues. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of command, commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he became, excuse me, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Here's number two on your outline. The process, Paul lays out the process of reconciling Jews and Gentiles. He, he explains in verses 13 and 17, here's how Jesus did what seemed to be impossible again. It was first it seemed impossible in verses 1-10 through 10 that Jesus could reconcile God and man. Well, now He does another seemingly impossible thing and He reconciles Jews and Gentiles. Notice in verse 13, but now, but now, I suggest you underline or highlight these two words in your Bible just like I have because they're very important. But now, I've mentioned before, and you might remember this, that I call but now a pivot or a hinge in the text. It's, it's where, just like Paul did back in verse 4, when he said, but God, remember that? Here, here's, your, here's your life before Christ, but God showed up with Jesus, and you got saved and everything changed. Well, in the same sense... Paul, when he writes, but now, in verse 13, he shifts his chain of thought from describing the hopeless condition before Christ to what God did for us in Christ. All that was true in verses 11 and 12 has now changed. And so there's a 90 degree turn. Whereas verses 1 through 10 were about how Jesus made peace possible between us and God. Verses 13 to 17 explain how He made peace possible between Jews and Gentiles. So how did Jesus do it? Here's letter A. First of all, He became peace Himself. He became peace Himself. Paul writes in verse 14, For He Himself is our peace. 
Please notice the repetition of the word peace in verses 14, 15, and 17. So what does it mean that Jesus is our peace? Well, it, it means that His death made it possible for two different ethnic groups that were at odds with each other for centuries to be made one in Christ. Well, how did you do that? Well, Paul gives two specific examples. In verse 14, first, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I need to give a little background information here of uh, what was going on in the culture at the time to help us understand this. That phrase there that you see in verse 14, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. Some commentators, many reputable commentators, believe this is a reference to Herod's temple in Jerusalem where Jews would go to worship the Lord. This massive temple, and I'm, I tried my hardest to find a picture and I couldn't find one online that looked good enough, so I'm going to have to try and just describe it verbally. It was a massive temple in Jerusalem that was built around the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And then out from the center were concentric rooms, or they were like courts, sections that were built that allowed worshipers, based on their religious rank, to worship. And so, so the priests got to enter the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. In the next court, moving out from the center, were the Jewish men. They were allowed to worship there. The next court, moving out, had Jewish women. And then the outer court was called the Court of the Gentiles. And that is, it was for Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and they were allowed to worship, but they had to stay in the outermost court. And basically what it communicated to the Gentiles was, you know, you can worship like a Jew, but you'll never be a Jew because you were never born a Jew. That happened for centuries. In fact, in the late 19th century, archaeologists discovered a sign engraved on a wall that was designed to limit the Gentiles' access. There was a, about a four-foot-high wall that uh, kept the Gentiles. It was a boundary so that when Gentiles came to worship, uh, exercising their Jewish faith, they had to stop and couldn't go any further, but any Jews could keep going in further, closer to the center. But here's what, the, here's what this engraved sign said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So, so if you were a Gentile and you, you gave your heart to the one true God and decided to become a Jew before Christ showed up, you could go worship in the temple, but you got told, this is as far as you can go. But if you were born Jewish, and you were a male or female, you could go further in. Gentile, you got to stay over there. It, it would be almost like it, it would be almost like us saying, um, hey, if you were born and raised in Bakersfield, you're welcome to sit anywhere you want here. But man, if you were not born in Bakersfield, you got to sit all the way back there when you come to worship here. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I love Jesus and, and, and I follow Jesus just like you do. Yeah, but you weren't born in Bakersfield. you got to stay all the way out there. You don't get to come closer to the center of the activity. That is what Paul's talking about here. The wall that separated the Gentiles in the temple from the Jews had to be demolished so they could be reconciled and worshipped together. You see, even though they worshipped under the same roof of this massive temple in Jerusalem, they weren't really worshipping together. They were segregated in their worship. So, this is one of the many things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. His death literally tore the temple curtain in two and metaphorically removed the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. This is probably why Paul said in verse 13, you who were once far off, 
mean, you Gentiles, you were told to go over there, whereas the Jews were able to be near. Well, Paul uses near and far a couple times here in this passage, you'll see. In other words, he's saying, when you Gentiles follow Judaism, you had to go over there by yourself. But now, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. It's hard for us to understand it as 21st century Americans, but this is huge. Huge. So how else did Jesus make peace? Well, verse 15, Paul gives a second example by abolishing the law of commandments. The other issue of contention between the Jews and the Gentiles was the Old Testament law books that told the Jews what to eat, how to dress, how to make animal sacrifices, etc., in order to be clean and to stay right with God. This would be law books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. One reason why Jews and Gentiles hated each other was that the former wanted to hang on to the law books because they were so used to the structure that it provided, but the latter didn't care about them. The pagans, they didn't care about them. The Gentiles, they're like, what? We were used to living free and doing whatever we wanted. And so that caused clashes in the New Testament church. Jesus solved this problem by fulfilling the law for everybody. So that instead of having to earn our righteousness on our own by keeping the law perfectly, Jesus made it possible for anyone to receive His righteousness through faith and repentance in Him. You see, that, that's, the, that's the ultimatum that God gives, basically, is that if you don't want to receive Christ in order to receive salvation from Him, then you have to keep all the Old Testament laws perfectly to get into heaven. And since no one could ever do that, He sent Christ to do it for us. Next, Paul says in verse 15 that He might create one new man in place of two. Notice how the Lord didn't tell the Jews to be, be, be less Jewish, would you? And he didn't tell the Gentiles, you know, if you could just turn down your Gentility. I don't think that's a word, sorry. <laughs> if you could just stop being as Gentile as you are, and maybe we can all get along. No, he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus makes a new humanity, and Paul calls both groups to become something greater than themselves. To become like Christ. So thus, the key to racial reconciliation is not for one group to become like the other, but rather both groups to become like Christ. That's how he solves the problem. And he would say that today between, say, for example, white Christians and black Christians. He, 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 Paul wouldn't say, you know, you white Christians, you need to be less white, or black Christians, you need to be less black. Instead, what the text is saying is, both y'all, to use a little Texas slang, be like Christ. Be like Him. Be one in Christ. So, what else did Jesus do to help the Jews and Gentiles be reconciled? Well, letter B, Jesus preached peace. He preached peace during His ministry. Jesus taught that through repentance and faith in Him, anyone could have peace with God. And by reconciling both groups to God, it then allows verse 18 to be activated. This is another key, very important part of the text. Verse 18. You see it there in your Bible? Through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Keep in mind, Paul was Jewish. So he says both. Paul's, Paul's representing his people in the one sense. He understands Jewish history and culture. But he's saying to the Gentiles in Ephesus, now, because of all the work that Jesus did on the cross, we both have access to God the Father. It, it, 
It's significant because remember what I told you about the temple court, excuse me, the, the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, and how it was segregated by courts, and how the Gentiles who had given their heart to become Jews and, and, and practice the Jewish faith, they had not the same access. They didn't have the same access as true Jews did. Well, now that's changed. So instead of Christianity being like, say, the Department of Defense at the Pentagon, where employees are granted more or less access with a key card based on their rank, now everyone has the same key card, which is Jesus. In the Old Testament, access to God was restricted based on your bloodline, but now, but now, he's saying both groups have the same access level through the blood of Christ. And so, Jesus Christ makes a unified, universal church possible. Okay, implication. How can we draw a direct line from the text to our life? What's this mean for us here today? 21st century Americans in California. Well, I think it means there's no broken relationship Jesus cannot reconcile. I think what's implied in the text is there's no broken relationship Jesus cannot reconcile. If two divided parties are willing to submit to Christ and apply His Word any broken relationship can be restored. However, this is not always possible. Not not because of Jesus, but because of us. Sometimes just one party or neither party is willing to submit to Christ and apply His Word in order to be reconciled. Sometimes the wife is willing to do it, but the husband isn't. Sometimes one member of the church is willing, but the other member isn't. Sometimes neither member is willing. Sometimes the reconciliation comes years later. But it's not Jesus' fault. This doesn't happen. It's our fault. Now this brings me to a very important caution that I need to make. Although it's true, there's no broken relationship Jesus cannot reconcile, we cannot expect every broken relationship to be reconciled this side of heaven. We have to have balanced expectations there. Even Jesus said, This would be the case in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36. Why? Why can't we have every relationship reconciled and everybody living in peace and hunky-dory and all life's good, peachy cream? Why can't we have that now? Well, because so long as some follow Christ while others don't, some apply His Word while others don't, and the adversary is allowed to do His work on earth, there will be broken relationships until the Lord returns. We still are supposed to try, Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. If possible. He leaves room for the fact that sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you're in conflict or you have a broken relationship with an unbeliever or a false believer, someone who says they're saved, but they're really not, so they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, thus they don't fear the Lord, and they don't fear His Word. So you can't reconcile. Because you're operating on God's Word as the final authority, and they don't recognize it. So, there is no broken relationship Jesus cannot reconcile. He does work with willing parties that will submit to him and apply his word. Next, let's look at verses 19 to 22, final section here. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's your last point, the third point on the outline, the pronouncement of one universal church. Paul is pronouncing there now is one universal church. Now, allow me to explain what I mean by universal church. The scriptures define church in two different ways. First, a local church. That is an assembly of believers in a specific city or community or neighborhood. Second, the scriptures also talk about the universal church, which is all believers everywhere in the world. The Greek word for church in the New Testament always, always, always refers to a people, not a building. It's important for us Americans to understand because Americans commonly call the building where they go to gather church, which is understandable, but it's easy to get the identity of God's people wrapped up in a building. They often didn't have that in the New Testament. They gathered in homes or anywhere they could find a place to meet. Their identity was always wrapped up in Christ. And so they were the church when they gathered together. Literally, ecclesia. It's the Greek word, if you break it down, it means called out ones or gathered ones. Called out of the world to gather together, to worship and study the scriptures. So in these remaining verses, what's interesting is that although the church is not a building, it's a people, Paul ironically uses construction language to describe the creation of a new temple, a new place to worship. And then he even refers to Jesus himself as a key part of the construction. Do you see it there in your Bible? Verse 20, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In ancient building construction, a cornerstone was meticulously placed and then used to measure the rest of the blocks that would be put in the building so that all those other blocks were measured against the cornerstone and would be straight. And so in his metaphor, the stones here that Paul is referring to are all the Jewish and Gentile Christ followers. And Jesus is the foundation upon which that church is built. So what's the implication? I think what's implied in the text that practically in our life is that it's possible to worship with believers from other cultures. It's possible to worship with other believers who don't dress like us, look like us, smell like us, talk like us, or listen to the same music we do. So long as there is doctrinal alignment, and this is important, it's possible to worship, fellowship, and partner with other churches who are culturally different than ours. But doctrinal alignment is important because not every church that talks about Jesus is a legitimate church. You've heard me say that before as we've studied other New Testament letters. There were false prophets and false teachers that started false churches. And it's been going on ever since the first century. And it still happens today. That matters because God's word forbids his true churches from affiliating or fellowshipping with false churches. Now, mission trips are probably one of the best examples where this happens, where believers from one country go to another country and they worship and serve together and proclaim the gospel together. They, although they are very different, they talk different, dress different, they have different music, different language, they unite under the name of Christ to do kingdom work. It's always powerful and beautiful to see. So, applications. What should we do now that we've studied this text? It's an important question you must always ask when you open God's Word. 
at the end of your devotions, Monday through Friday, you should always ask, what is the text calling me to do? What's the call to action? And that's important because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, the one who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's the first application that comes to mind. Based on verses 11 and 12, pursue humility daily. Pursue humility daily. Although chapter 2 doesn't tell us the Ephesians were a proud church, it's clear, I think, the apostle wants his readers to clothe themselves in humility. He seems to be saying, if I were to paraphrase it, don't let your spiritual blessings make you proud like it did the Jews. Being transferred from a life that was spiritually impoverished to one that is spiritually enriched should make us the most humble people on the entire planet. But unfortunately, the reverse is also true. Spiritually enriched believers become proud when they forget they were spiritually impoverished at one time. You know, I'm a big fan of J.C. Ryle, the um, 19th century English bishop, and it's because he has such profound insight into the Scriptures. And when he writes, he's just got a way with words that makes it go boom. Well, he wrote this about humility. Ryle said, The root of humility is right knowledge. The man or woman who really knows themselves and their own heart and the price at which they were redeemed will never be a proud man or woman. This, mean, this means if you really understand what Paul was saying in verses 11 and 12, if you really believe what God's Word's saying about your life before Christ, there's no way you should ever be proud after Christ, knowing what you were saved from. And if you are proud still as a Christian, that means you don't know what you were saved from. That's what he's saying. It also means that if the gospel you believed makes you think you're still better than others, then you believe the wrong gospel. I'm not saying you have to say you're better than others, but deep down in your heart, in the recesses of your mind and heart, if you think you're better than others, and you believe the wrong gospel. Believers who really know the condition of their sinful heart, they don't criticize others because they know they got enough problems to deal with right here. They don't seek the attention of others. They don't brag about their accomplishments or voice their opinions when not asked or refuse to listen and learn from others or blame others when they're wrong or resist God-ordained authority. Instead, they are humble. They're humble. They want to glorify God with their life. They don't want to steal any glory from Him. So if they do anything good, they say, man, praise the Lord. Because apart from Him, I have no good. I can do no good. The boss says, man, you're getting employee of the year in your performance evaluation. Praise the Lord. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have the strength, the talent, the skills, the wisdom on how to do this job. You get a good grade in school. Praise the Lord. If it wasn't for him helping me to remember things, I couldn't have passed the test or written the paper. Next, number two, second application that comes to mind, invite different people and welcome all newcomers. Invite different people and welcome all newcomers. We have some new outreach initiatives I'll be talking about in a family chat in a couple of weeks. We encourage our members to write that down on your calendar. It's in the worship folder this morning. 
I think this text is timely for us as a church because it's highly probable that our outreach this year is going to attract some visitors who don't look, talk, or smell like us. And I think this text is challenging us to, to be willing to step out of our comfort zone and invite someone to church from a different ethnic background or to make an effort to get to know a visitor who looks different than us, or to take them to lunch. Really take an interest in their life, not the casual, hey, how you doing? Thanks for visiting today. Hey, see ya. Keep in mind, a visitor to this church or any church will always feel more uncomfortable than you because it's not their church. I, I, you probably never heard a pastor say this. I would encourage you to visit another church sometime and then come back to Vanguard, though. <laughs> but go visit another church just to refresh your memory on what it's like to be an outsider. It'll change your perspective when you're back here at Vanguard and you see the Lord send somebody to visit. It should help you empathize with them that, man, they stepped out in faith and came to a church where they know no one. I want to make sure they feel welcomed. Well, in May of 1944, Life magazine published a feature story after interviewing several descendants of the Hatfield and McCoy clans. Life wanted to show how American readers, they wanted to show their American readers, excuse me, how members of these two infamous families could now live together in peace some 40 years after five decades of violence. A subplot in the story uh, showed two descendants of these clans, Shirley Hatfield and Frankie McCoy, working together in a local factory that produced military uniforms. Life wanted to show, quote, the unifying effect of America's war efforts at the height of World War II, end quote. What fascinated me in my research on the McCoy-Hatfield hostilities is that just as it took a greater cause outside of themselves for Shirley, Hatfield, and Frankie McCoy to work together, any group of believers that's willing to become more like Christ outside of them can also work together. In any group of believers that's willing to set aside their cultural differences and focus on what they have in common in Christ can work together. And that's why Jesus Christ makes a unified universal church possible. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.